legalism and abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement by pointing them to the truth of the scriptures. Now, here's your host, John Hollyfield and James C. Welcome back, everybody, to the Four Freedom Podcast. I am your host, John Hollyfield. I'm here with... Uh, the guy in the other chair, our co-host, James Safer. How's it going, James? I'm doing good. We are sitting here with my son, and uh, he's joining us for today's episode. He's not going to give us any input, uh, but he's going to be in the room with us. And uh, we had a little scare last night. My wife went to the hospital. Her blood pressure is a little high. And uh, so I was on daddy duty. We had three babies or babies three kids and then i had the baby that i was taking care of feeding and had a baseball game it was uh it was crazy very crazy but the lord gave us grace and she's home now and we've got her on some different meds just trying to get her blood pressure down but it's doing pretty good now praise the lord praise the lord yeah and so we're we're happy that we'll continue to pray for uh ally as she uh lord continues to allow her blood pressure to go down uh, speaking of blood pressure, I know a lot of people in the IFB world's blood pressure went up really high this past week. And so with that, let's get into our This Week Roundup. Pretty much all we're going to do this time in This Week Roundup is we're going to cover this really exciting clip that just landed. Uh, this was interesting. IFB Sermon Clips. Thank you, IFB Sermon Clips, whoever you are. Uh, you are awesome. I'm doing the hard work here. Is it you, John? It is. It is not me. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's not you. It is not me. But uh, had this clip of old Clarence Sexton. Clarence Sexton, and uh, I'm going to play this clip for you. This is, and James and I are going to dive into it a bit. But this is interesting, and this really set set the uh, the recovering fundamentalist world ablaze this past weekend. So let's go ahead and listen to this young couple came to places where I was preaching. They were singers. And by the third meeting, they were from another place. By the third meeting, I said to them, why are you singing the same songs all the time? These are our best songs. These are songs people want to hear. I noticed she didn't carry a Bible. She just used his Bible. And I said to them, Something's not right with you. I stuck my nose in their business. They were not much younger than me. But I said, if you sing the same songs and hop from church to church, you'll get by with it because people haven't heard you. But what's happening to you? You're not growing. You're not developing. You're not learning anything new. You're not digging any deeper. What kind of shallow person do you want to become? I don't think they took it very well. I really don't. But I did ask about them later, and I'm so sorry. Their marriage didn't make it. Neither of them now in the ministry. 
They're probably among the God haters who tried some brand of it that didn't work. They're everywhere. They're all over the internet. They want to be, uh, what do they call it? What do they call it? Recovering from fundamentalism or something. They're everywhere. And I think to myself, well, you were just stupid to begin with. And if there's such a word, you're stupider now. And uh, they mark themselves up, cover their faces and whiskers and lots of things like that. Evidently ashamed of who they are. But there's no forthrightness in them. And their message, their message today is uh, don't get flubbed up like us. And all you flubbed up people, you come and we'll all flub up together now. It's how ridiculous. God wants you to bear fruit. And there's no way around it but to abide. And that is yielding. Man, I tell you what, whenever somebody gets poked, you really find out what comes out of them, doesn't it? Man, uh, I've got three things here, John. We'll digest a couple of these things. The first one is this. If you only sing the same songs, almost like the, uh, I loved how the 26 Letters podcast the other day when they were talking about hymns, they said their songbook had 540 some songs in them, but they only sing about 20 of them. So if you're only, (laughs) (laughs) if you're only going to sing the same songs, you're going to become shallow. Almost sounds like the hymn books that we use where we only use the same ones. And if you don't carry a Bible, then what he's basically saying, you sing the same songs, your hymns in church, you don't carry your Bible, your marriage is going to end up in divorce. That's what I got out of the first part. What's your thought of the first part, John? Yeah, I I don't really understand. Maybe he didn't give all the information there, but it seemed like he was correlating the the ending of their marriage and where they're at today with the fact that they didn't like the fact that he was questioning their, 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 where they are in their spiritual growth by the fact that they sang the same songs everywhere they went. I mean, it seemed to me like he really didn't dig too deep into these people and find out like where they were with their Bible, where they were spiritually, but he made his incomplete assessment on the fact of they sang the same songs that's the test of their spiritual growth. None of it makes any sense. And the fact that this is this classic IFB thing of making the correlation of that, uh, of that's the reason why they're not together, that's the reason why they're not in church, idiotic. Yeah. Well, and he said he he just knows his way on in. He, he wanted to figure it out. Second thing I liked that he said was uh, that if we cover ourselves. With our whiskers, we're ashamed of who we are. Now, he's using this in the same context as tattoos. Um, but God says, or, or Jesus himself had whiskers. He had a beard, okay? They plucked him. They plucked his beard out on the crucifixion day. They plucked his beard out. So what we are saying is if you have whiskers and or tattoos, you're ashamed of who you are. So does that mean that Jesus was ashamed of who he is, John? Yeah, that's another idiotic thing. Listen, I'm not a fan of Clarence Sexton, to be honest with you. I got my feel of him whenever uh, the place that I was at, you know, before I left the IFB. There's things I know about this guy. I'm just not a fan. And what he's saying makes no sense, because if you know anything about him, his hero is Charles Spurgeon. And old Charles Spurgeon had, like, really massive beard. Jesus had a beard. 
So why is he was also ashamed of who he was, John Charles Burke? Yeah, yeah. Where does that come from? You're ashamed of who you are. Idiotic, John. Are we going to be clubbed up together? Yeah, and, and you know what I think this was. I think this was some kind of. Uh, he's he's been poked. The recovering fundamentalists and the recovering fundamentalist crowd is poking him, and I'll tell you why it's poking him because people are leaving their churches. And they're leaving their churches because they're waking up to this legalism stuff, and it's starting to bug these guys. And now you have Clarence Sexton sort of aggravated about it and then begins to talk and gives this really weak, weird story to give his opportunity to, you know, hit this. And, and his temper, you know, his little anger came out a little bit, and it was, it was, it was strange. It was just strange. And... You, somebody had said this on Twitter, and they were exactly right. Obviously, he's never listened to any of them because he, he thinks this idea is that those that go this route have left the faith. They have not left the faith. We haven't left the faith. Yeah, you know, I, I, it brought me back to the statement that Jack Tuber said just a couple of weeks ago, um, how X amount of churches, I can't remember the statistic, is shutting down every year. And in five to ten years – fundamentalism as they know it, the IFB movement will be gone. Um, you know, it's just this me-centered, the, the independent fundamental Baptist is revolved around a person, um, which is horrible if it is. Uh, but you know, and I know, that that each camp is resolved around a person. And this is where Clarence Sexton knows he's coming to the end of his reign at the Crown College, and he's just trying to make some jabs to rally the troops, to herd the cattle, to get them together. Um, and that's the, I feel that's what it is right now. Let me say this. If it does come to an end, it's going to come to an end because of pastoring and preaching like this. Yeah, you're exactly right. Last thing I want to mention is I do want to give a shout-out to the uh, is it IFB Sasquatch. Who oh put, yeah! Who put yeah. together all of the the great little picture arts of all the hosts? And uh, I am a Dumb and Dumber fan. I think me and John have both watched Dumb and Dumber together, so it fit us perfect because we are the four free dumb, dumb, the dumb. <laughs> <laughs> we are that we are with stupider. That was the movement they sort of sparked. This I'm with stupider. And, you know, thank you, IFB Sasquatch, for labeling us the four free dumb. I mean, there's so many great classic moments from that movie. That's a, it's a classic movie. I mean, what are the chances of a guy like you and a girl like me ending up together? <laughs> like one in a thousand? No, more like one in a million. So you're saying there's a chance. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, my, I love it. I love it. And I'm glad that we are part of the trending crowd. Um, I got to put my face outside of the dogmobile. We are awesome. Uh, that is amazing. I, I want to thank IFB Sasquatch for that. We should make that our, our graphic for the podcast. For, especially for this episode. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, I want to so bad. We might get kicked off the RFP network if we did. Oh, it's so good. So good. All right, guys. Well, we're excited to get into the today's message. This is going to be part two of our sit-down with Mike Hutchinson on expository preaching, and you're going to like this one today because we wrap up the conversation with talking about this main part of the discussion, and that is how do you put together expository preaching? How do you do it? 
And uh, I hope that you have a pen and a notepad available because me and James were sitting there with ours writing down notes the entire time. Uh, So this is some good stuff. And uh, so enjoy. Here's part two of expository preaching. You don't want it to be a lecture. We talked about that. You want it to be engaging. So how do you get to the point where you've prepared it and you've executed it and you now know that you've got it right? Okay, so there are a lot of pieces to this puzzle. Uh, So we're going to start where it needs to start, which is exegeting the text of Scripture. Uh, So there are various there are various methods that you can use to do that. Uh, One would be something like a structural analysis. So I want to find, you know, the the primary clause of the passage and the subordinate clauses of the passage. And I want to see kind of where the emphasis is. The method that I use is called Bible arcing uh, or arcing. You'll also hear it referred to as tracing. Uh, that's the method that's used by John Piper, uh, by Thomas Schreiner, and that's taught by uh, G.K. Beale at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And so the idea with arcing is that I'm going to take that passage of Scripture and I'm going to break it into clauses, right? So um, hang on a second. Let me grab... All right, I just grabbed my Bible. Um, so let's go, uh, let's see here, let's just flip to a spot. All right. Um, so you want to have a Bible handy when you're doing expositional yes. preaching. That's probably a good thing to have. That's a, yeah, that's a good place to start. So let's, uh, let's take Hebrews as an example. Um, so if I am preaching the book of Hebrews, let's say I'm preaching the, the very beginning of that. Uh, so God having, okay, so actually let me back up here. The first thing you need to do before you even get involved in exegesis is you need to determine what your preaching portion is. So we need to start there. Okay. So whatever portion of scripture that I'm going to preach on, the first thing that I need to do is determine, uh, how big a chunk of preacher preach, uh, how big a chunk of scripture I'm taking for my sermon, because I don't want to preach an isolated verse. I want to preach a complete thought, right? And so that's my first step. So I want to identify where is that complete thought at? Where does the thought begin? Where does it end? And then that's going to be my preaching portion. And then I'm going to go into the exegetical process. So this is um, Hebrews chapter one. So my preaching portion there would be uh, through verse four. That's a complete thought. And then verses 5 through 14 would form a second complete thought, right? So Hebrews chapter 1, God having of old time spoken unto the fathers and the prophets by various portions and in various manners, has at the end of these days spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, uh, who being the effulgence of his glory and the very image of his substance and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had made purification of sin, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So uh, I know this because I've recently been in Hebrews. The spine of that sentence is God spoke, right? So that's your, your verb there is God has spoken. And the the point of that text, so as I go through the exegetical process, what I'm looking for is I want to break that into clauses, right? So God having spoken of old unto the fathers and the prophets at various times and in various ways. Uh, But in these last days, he has spoken to us in or through his son, 
right? There's your main point, right? So God spoke in various ways through the prophets, but his final eschatological revelation of himself is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's my, that's how I'm arriving at my exegesis or my exegetical point. And when you pull together your exegetical point, what you want to do is you want to, you want to reduce the point of the text to a single sentence, Okay, so what I want to do when I'm looking at that, I'm trying to formulate my exegetical point as I'm asking the question, what is the text about? Right. So what is the subject of the text? And the subject of the text is not the same thing as the subject of a sentence. Right. So the subject of the text would be what what topic is this particular text dealing with? That's the first question I'm asking. Then I want to find the complement. Right. Which is the second half of my sentence, which is going to be, okay. I know what the text is talking about. Now, what does it say about its subject? And then I'm going to take those two things and I'm going to jam them together and I'm going to turn them into a sentence. And so I I want to try and keep that sentence short. I want to make it very tight. I want to make it very terse. Right. And so I want to try and keep that sentence if I can to no more than 12 to 15 words at the absolute most, right? And so once I've done that, once I've got the nugget of what this text is about, now I'm going to start preparing my sermon, right? And so the exegetical stuff is all what happens before the sermon itself is prepared. It's necessary for sermon preparation, You have to have done the exegetical work, but exegesis is not the same thing as preparing a sermon, right? So if all you're doing is getting up and reading an exegetical paper, you're done, right? You haven't preached yet. I'm sorry. And that's not a sermon. So I got to sit in on a uh, ordination exam. And one of the things that you have to do when you do your ordination exam, actually, when you do your licensure exam as well, is you have to preach in front of your presbytery. And I heard a ruling elder tell a candidate I don't want to hear your exegesis from that pulpit, son. And I remember when I heard that, I was like, ooh, uh, that's a tough statement. But I understood what he was driving at, right? So you're not just going into the pulpit and reproducing your exegetical work. So I've got my nugget now. I've got my exegetical point. So the very next thing that I am going to do is I'm going to ask myself some further questions. Who am I preaching to? So who's my audience? right? Um, Am I preaching to folks that are primarily aged? Am I preaching to people that are primarily young? Am I preaching to people that are spiritually mature or immature? Am I speaking to people that are wealthy? Am I speaking to people that are poor? Am I speaking primarily to men? Or am I speaking primarily to women? I want to nail down who my audience is. And to the extent that I'm able, I want to try and nail down their spiritual condition, right? So now I know who I'm preaching to. Next step for me is that now I'm going to make my move. I'm going to move from homiletics to preaching. I'm going to move to my homiletical point. And here's how you're going to do that. So I want to take my exegetical point and my knowledge of who I'm preaching to. And then I'm going to sit down and I'm going to have you know, either my, my computer open or I'm going to have you know, a, a legal pad or a notebook next to me. And I'm going to start writing out various ways that that exegetical point applies to the people to whom I'm preaching, right? And so I'm asking myself a couple of questions there. Uh, the central one for me that you've got to carry into that is what is my purpose in preaching this text, 
right? So I know what the exegetical point is. What do I want the people in my congregation to do about that? That's your application, right? And so now we've got, we've got explicatio, we've got explanation because we've done the exegetical work. We know what the passage is about. Now we're going to go to application. And so what I want to do is take that exegetical point, filter it through my audience, and then I'm going to figure out exactly how it applies to them. What is one thing that I want them to do, right? And so I may have eight or nine possible homiletical points. I may have eight or nine possible ways that that exegetical point applies to the people to whom I'm preaching, right? Um, and just as an aside, if folks are listening to this and you're preachers, you need to pick up a copy of The Art of Prophesying by William Perkins, and you need to take his um, kind of his chart, you might say. He doesn't, make, he doesn't produce it as a chart, but it's how I think of it, of the various categories of hearer, like what kind of hearers are going to be in your audience. Then you want to take your various kinds of application and you want to put those together. And so as I am thinking about that, I think about, okay, who is it that I want to speak to with this particular homiletical point? Am I going to be speaking to the ignorant but teachable? Uh, am I preaching to those who are hardened in their sin? Do they need to be broken by the word of God? Am I preaching to people who have a tender conscience? And that all affects the sort of application that I'm going to apply here. And so I'm going to form my homiletical point. And when I do that, I'm looking at possible levels of application at every stage, right? So I'm not just looking at what I want them to do, right? That's not sufficient. Why do I want them to do it? What's the motivation behind it? How do they do it? Those are some of the questions that are back there. I formulate my homiletical point, right? So now I know what the point of the sermon is, and this is a one-point sermon. That's it. I'm not preaching three points in a prayer. And here's why, okay? So, folks, this is, this is not immaterial to the, the person that's sitting in the pew. So if you've ever sat in a sermon that felt like it just went on for ages and ages and ages, and you're pretty sure that when the pastor's done, you're going to be able to go eat breakfast together before you have to be at work at 8 a.m., that tells me that one of two things has happened. One, the sermon is lacking in movement, uh, which is one of Dabney's seven cardinal requisites, right? So every sermon needs to have a sense of sustained progress towards a specific goal. And so if you feel like the, ser if you feel like the sermon has taken like an hour and, and, and a half, and then you look down at your watch and the guy's only been preaching for 20 minutes, that's a sermon that's lacking in movement. One way that that can happen is using a Harvard outline for your sermon and you've taken too much, uh, a too large a portion of scripture, or scripture. Those are possibilities. So if you use a Harvard outline, uh, that's the, the outlining method that almost everyone is familiar with, right? Roman numeral one, subheading capital A, subheading capital B, Roman numeral two, so on and so forth. Well, what can happen when you use that particular outlining format, if you're not real careful, is you can actually wind up with three sermons. Because you've got three sections, and they aren't necessarily tied together. There's no unity to it. That's why you form your homiletical point first, because I need to know where I'm going. I need to have a destination in my homiletical GPS. I need to know where this sermon is headed. So now that I've got my homiletical point, and I've, I've formulated my, my sermon, uh, I, I know where it is that I'm going to go. Now I'm going to start a process of moving to that. And this is, this is what I do. 
This is not what you have to do. This is not what anyone who's listening to this as a preacher has to do. This is what I do, and it's what I recommend, but I don't presume to say that it's going to you know, be the, the perfect method for you particularly. You have to figure out what works for you, and so you need to have the freedom to experiment a little bit and figure this out, but this is what I do. So I have my exegetical point that I started with. And as I move through this, I never want to have more than six steps that are going to take me to my homiletical point, right? Because more than six steps and the sermon gets too complex and your people can't follow it, right? And this is one of the areas where, God, I love the Puritans, right? The Puritans were phenomenal preachers and so good at applying the text. But uh, there's a a six-volume set called Puritan Sermons, uh, it was a sermons that were preached at Cripplegate between like 1649 and 1669 or 1679. Uh, so go to the first sermon in volume one, right? And he uses that Harvard style outline, right? So major heading, subheading, sub subheading, sub sub subheading, so on and so forth. Take that and take every heading and kick it all the way out to the left margin and then number those headings sequentially. Want to guess how many points that first sermon in that book series has? Just take a wild guess. I want to see if either of you guys can get close here. I'll say 30. All right. What do you got, James? Uh, 10? 64. Holy cow. It is a 64-point sermon. Your people aren't the beneficiaries of 200 years of strongly doctrinal expository preaching. They cannot follow that. You are asking too much of them. Now, the Puritans weren't asking too much of them because these are people that were, you know, had been on the tail end of at least 100 years of Reformation preaching. Right. So remember what I said at the beginning, our preaching and our context, the context that you and I live in right now is closer to that of the reformers. So if I'm looking for someone to influence my preaching, I'm not going to try to preach like a Puritan. I'm going to try to preach like an Ulrich Zwingli or a Martin Butzer or a John Calvin or a Martin Luther. I want my sermon to be simple and easy to follow. And so there are six steps that are going to lead me to my homiletical point. And at each of those, I'm, I'm asking, so here's what I'm trying to do with each of those six steps. Imagine a triangle that's turned upside down. With each step of that sermon, I'm narrowing more and more and more and more all the way down to the point of the sermon. So every step is moving me that direction. My logic is all headed that way. And with every step of that sermon, I'm going to explain I am going to apply, and I am going to transition, okay? So now, sometimes you may be dealing with something in that particular first or second or third or fourth or fifth or sixth step that needs to be proven, right? Um, And so then I'll have to bring in other passages of Scripture. Uh, I want to illustrate something. That's a real possibility as well. Um, But at every step, here's the easy way to remember that. Um, I want to give my people something to eat at every step of the sermon. Explain, apply, transition to my next step. Explain, apply, transition to my next step. And so I'm constantly thinking about how each step in my sermon, that particular verse, 
applies when I'm when I'm explaining what it means. So if we go to Daniel chapter 9, we look at verses 20 through 27. I'm going to look at verse 24, and I'm going to ask the question, okay, what is it in verse 24 that I need to explain, right? Because Daniel chapter 9 is a tough passage, right? Because you're dealing with, you know, who is this, you know, what is this abomination of desolation? What are we dealing with with these 70 weeks? How are these things all going? Okay, so I'm going to explain that. Now my question is, how does that apply to the people that are listening to me? So let's say I'm taking all of Daniel chapter 9. It opens with Daniel's prayer. Here's how I'm going to apply Daniel's prayer, right? First, or let's take a step back. It starts with Daniel studying the, the prophecy of Jeremiah, right, to, to understand that the 70 years of exile are about to end. So here's how I'm going to apply that. Our text opens with Daniel studying his Bible. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, if a man filled with the Holy Spirit, just as the prophet Daniel was, if a man who was a high-ranking official in government found it necessary to study Scripture for greater understanding of God and what He is doing in the world, how much more necessary is it for you to study the Word? Do you neglect your Bible? Are you reading the word regularly? As you read the word, does it convict you? Does it encourage you? Now I'm going to transition, right? So my transition sentence there is going to be, um, beloved, the word now does its uh, convicting work. And what we find next in our text is Daniel's confession of his sin and his people's sin. And my application there is going to apply the need to confess sin, the need to intercede on behalf of yourself, your family, your church, your county, your state, your nation. Those are all places that I can go with application. And I'm doing that at each step. And so when I'm done with my sermon outline, what I should have as my leading kind of step for each sermon is a single sentence. And then I'm explaining that sentence and I'm applying that sentence and I'm transitioning. And so what you've done is taken your sermon preparation and you've basically created a six sentence paragraph and you should be able to check how your logic hangs together through that whole thing. And as long as your logic is tight and as long as you're preaching the point of the text, you're doing it right. And now having applied everything that's in that text to my people, I come to my final application. That's my point of my sermon. And I'm going to drive that thing into, by the Holy Spirit's power, the hearts and minds of my listeners. This is what I want you to do. So I've recently been preparing a, a sermon on, on Daniel chapter 9, which is why I'm able to do this off the top of my head. Seemingly, I'm not. This is all rolling around right now. Um, so what's going to be my point of that sermon? Well, when you read that, we find that God's purpose in what's coming for Daniel's yet future in the 70 weeks is, uh, is founded in these six purposes, right? It's to bring an end to sin. It's to uh, steal up prophecy. Like, so you have these six purposes that are given in that text. And all of those six purposes are fulfilled in the uh, active and passive obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when I preach that text, my sermon point when I preach it in a few weeks, is going to be uh, receive and rest on Christ alone for salvation because he has fulfilled all that is necessary in the covenant of grace. And so as I preach that in my conclusion, I'm going to find a way to repeat that three times, right? Either in full or various pieces of it. So think of it like you're hammering a nail into a piece of wood. 
right? So I'm hammering, 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 the nail's driven in. Now I'm going to flip that piece of wood over and I'm going to hammer the back end of the nail so that it bends it over and cinches it down, right? They can't pull that thing out. And so when the service is over and they're driving the home and the question is, son, what was the sermon about? They should be able to give me the point of the sermon. This is what the sermon was about. It was about your need to receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation, right? So that's, even if they don't remember the outline, even if they don't remember the six steps that took, took them there, I want them to remember that homiletical point. That should be like the ring around the bathtub when the water's drained. That's what I want them to, to leave the church with. And so that's the process that I use in sermon preparation. And then I'll move to my next portion in Daniel, and I'll go through the same thing. But as I do that with each step, I'm always beginning with my context. I'm always explaining to you how this connects to what we talked about last time, how it connects to the larger context of the book. And so I'm always keeping that in front of you so that you can follow the author's thread and know what he's doing. Yeah, and so the application, I think, that is really good there is that you mentioned that that point, like driving home that nail, and they're driving home and, and knowing that point, but what they're knowing whenever the application is brought from the text, everything being brought out and, and you know, don't get me wrong here, but a slave to the text— Yes. Ends up being what they're driving home with is scriptural truth. Yes. And so what I'm doing is taking the truth of that passage and I'm applying it to my listeners, head, heart, and hands. Right. So I want to engage their mind. It needs to be full of food for their understanding. I want to engage their heart. I want the word to pierce them to the very heart. I want to expose their hearts to them. I want them to see how it is that their emotions are tied up into this text. I want to move their affections. I want to persuade them. And then I want to preach to their hands. I want to tell them what it is that they need to do having heard the sermon. And so if you're listening to that sermon and you're an unbeliever, I want you to receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. So I've narrowed my audience. I'm only speaking to one category of hearer in that sermon, and I'm telling exactly what I want them to do, right? And so would you, would you say that this is to, to the, last, the last question is the result of expositional preaching? So what is the result of that? And did we already explain that or— Right. So ultimately, the result of expositional preaching should be, first, a better understanding of your Bible Mm -hmm. uh, and how it's put together. The second result of expositional preaching, if it's done properly, and it's, you know, not just explanation, but application too, is that you should know how you are to live as a Christian in this fallen world or how you as an unbeliever can be saved by the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's not simply I'm explaining the text to you. I'm explaining what it means to you, right? And so what I'm doing, what I have in mind as I'm working through this process is a single question that I'm imagining coming from the people that are listening to the sermon. And that single question is this. All right, Pastor, what's your point? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I remember, I don't know if we said it on here, but um, I think John did a couple weeks ago about when Steve Lawson was preaching and in college and his professor came in and stood there with a whiteboard that said, so what? 
We've got exactly the point of okay, what do you say? And I love the analogy you just gave, man. I'm I'm chewing on it. When the bathtub is gone, when everything is said and done, the ring around is what's left, and that's what they should remember. That that was yes. very powerful. So I, I don't need you to remember the sermon outline. I need yeah. you to remember what you need to do. And so, yeah. and I want to be really clear that I'm not talking about legalism here. I'm talking about obeying the commands of scripture yeah. from our new life, not for new life. That's the distinction I'm right. making. And in just as much as it is our goal in preaching to get to the central point of the text and being straight scriptural and being completely biblical, it's also just as much as our job to remove ourselves from it. So we are getting Absolutely. out of the way. As I preach, what I want to happen is for more and more of me to fade into the background and for more and more of Christ to get pushed into the foreground. And what I'm hoping is going to happen and what I'm driving at is that in this monologue of me speaking and people listening to me, what I want to have happen is I want to have a divine dialogue begin to happen. I want the word to be engaging them. And so I want their minds to be engaged. And what I want them to hear is not me. What I want them to hear is God. I want them to hear God speaking in his word. And I want them to be asking the question, so what? What do I do? How do I live this out? Right. And so with my application, I want to make my application super concrete. So I'm not going to just tell you what to do. I'm going to tell you how to do it. Right. So uh, if I'm telling you about submission, submitting to your husband, I'm going to give you a really concrete example of what submitting to your husband looks like. I want to move down that abstraction ladder and give you something you can do on Monday to obey God's word. Man, it's been so good, Mike. It's been yeah. so good. James, All right, guys. Thoughts? Man, I, my closing thought is rewind about 20 minutes and listen to that whole <laughs> last point again and take notes. That's my closing okay, so thought. <laughs> instead of doing that, you can go subscribe to the True Presbyterian podcast. And every oh, yeah. Friday this season, every Friday, I'm doing a series on sermon preparation. And so awesome. we're going to walk through each portion of this in much more detail. If you guys want to listen to that, then that's the place to go right now. Awesome. Awesome. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time out of your crazy schedule right now to be on with us. And uh, we, 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 if you can, you think you can do the lightning round with us real quick? I do seven questions with our guests just to, so people can get to know you a little bit better. All right, go. All right. First one, what is your favorite food? Pizza. <laughs> um, number two, favorite sports team? New York Yankees. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. I was brainwashed as a child. My okay. grandfather actually saw the 1927 Murderers Row team play. So he saw Babe Ruth and Luke Gehrig and those guys. Gotcha. Nice. All right. Favorite snack? Ooh, uh, peanut M&M's. Nice. Uh, favorite movie? Uh, the Boondock Saints. Oh, <laughs> my brother loves that one. Um, uh, favorite Bible story? Okay, that's entirely unfair to me. Um, <laughs> the story of David's mighty men from 1 Samuel. Nice. That's a good one. Um, the last book you finished. Uh, the last book that I finished was oh, um, A National Populism. 
uh, which is a book written by a guy named, actually, I, I don't have it handy. Uh, I think it's Goodwin and Eaton are the authors of that. And so it's about the current political environment that we find ourselves in. Interesting. James, you ought to write that one down. <laughs> yes, sir. I like um, it. And Lynn, the last one is favorite activity to do with your wife, Tricia. Uh, favorite act. Well, <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. I'll have to go with my second favorite activity. There we go. Um, <laughs> my second favorite activity to do with my wife, Tricia, is uh, usually going on a date to Chick-fil-A and just catching up on what's happening in her life uh, and getting a little closer view into what's happening in her heart. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. I mean, you know what? That's, hey, God ordained it. So that's why it's favorite. That's right. <laughs> yes. That's right. Indeed. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for listening to the podcast today. And uh, again, try to uh, make your way over to the True Presbyterian podcast and check some of that stuff out with, with Mike. And uh, we pr- we hope that uh, you share the podcast, like it, and appreciate all the, the love and support that we get from you. And until next time, to God, not topical preaching. Topical breaching be the glory. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you for listening to the For Freedom Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give a rating, leave a comment, or share it on Facebook or Twitter. To find more helpful resources for your journey through the independent fundamental Baptist world, check out rfpnetwork.org, where you can find this podcast and others such as the Recovering Fundamentals Podcast the RFWP podcast, the Young Baptist podcast, the Church Split, the Preacher's Kids podcast, the 26 Letters podcast, and the RFP in Espanol. God bless.